This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. Megan Hatcher Mays, it is such a pleasure to have you here. She is the Indivisible Director of Democracy Policy, and she's going to help us unpack all that we need to know about redistricting. And frankly, I hope she's going to help me walk off the ledge of fear that I'm currently residing on. Megan Hatcher Mays, it is such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I got to be honest with you. When I first heard about Indivisible, I was very intrigued (laughs) because it Mm. seemed like it was such a a well thought out and practical response to what we were experiencing. Uh, But I I don't want to presume that everyone is familiar with Indivisible. Can you tell us what the organization is and how it came to be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, like everyone uh, after the election in 2016, um, people were really scared and stressed out and weren't totally sure what we were going to do to kind of resist uh, some of the worst impulses of Donald Trump, who had just been elected. So our founders, uh, Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin, who um, both were former congressional staffers, really sat down and wrote kind of a practical guide for how to lobby Congress, how to talk to your member of Congress about what is important, what some ways that even though we weren't in the majority in um, the House or Senate and we had lost the White House, that there were still ways to amp up pressure in Congress to kind of prevent some of the worst, really the worst stuff that Donald Trump kind of had in mind and then really work towards winning back the House uh, at, during the midterm so that we could prevent it even more successfully. Mm. So that was kind of the rest of history. The, the guide went viral because I think a lot of people were looking around for kind of practical ways to be helpful. And as a result, here we are. We have uh, groups in all 50 states. We have um, thousands of groups in every state in the country. And um, even though Trump is gone, there's still obviously a lot of work to do. So our groups are very busy, um, you know, pretty much 24-7 trying to make our democracy <laughs> function properly, probably for the first time in our country's history. So here we are. We're actually going to tweet out the link to the Indivisible Guide. Shayla, I just dropped that into the caller spreadsheet uh, because I got to be honest with you, when I got my hands on the guide, I was like, what? Yes, this is this is <laughs> civics in a box. This is exactly what to do. Yep. And what struck me by it was that it was exactly what we had seen uh, a number of very successful movements do, i.e. the Tea Party, these groups that were really successful at thwarting a lot of President Barack Obama's agenda. Uh, and, and they were doing exactly what it was that you were talking about, which was at, a little sad to me also, because what's in the indivisible guide is literally like, here's how to work democracy 101. It's this information that we mm-hmm. should all have li- from, from like elementary school on so that we are clear about how the systems of power in our country work. So shout out to all of the folks who are a part of indivisible. If you are a part of the indivisible team out in the audience, uh, we love you guys because that is the work that absolutely <laughs> must be done. When it comes to the process called redistricting, uh, I got to be honest with you again. 
as I said earlier, most people have no idea what it is that we're talking about. They are not clear mm -hmm. about it. But what they do know is that the government that they thought they elected does not seem to necessarily be working for them, even when they elected uh, candidates uh, who actually are working for them. Can you explain mm -hmm. in a non-lawyerly, because when I explain it, it's all lawyerly and legalese and it's, it's boring. <laughs> Can you explain to the audience what the redistricting process is? Yes, absolutely. So basically, every 10 years, the government is required to do a census. So they just count everybody. Um, I'm sure everyone remembers that when Donald Trump was in charge of the last census, it was a huge mess. It was a disaster. Mm. It took a really long time. They were going out of their way to avoid count counting certain groups of people, uh, particularly immigrants and people of color. They didn't want to count them because they want those they wanted those types of people to be underrepresented um, in the government. They were successful in some ways and not as successful in other ways. But once that census data is released, then um, different states can start drawing what are called like the congressional maps for their states. And so sometimes states lose congressional districts because they've lost um, enough population where they would lose a seat. And some states will gain a congressional district because their population has grown to such a way that um, they need more representatives because there are more people in certain states. So if it all worked properly, this would be, all these maps would be drawn fairly. It would be normal. Everyone would be represented fairly. But of course, that is not the way that it works. So the census data is released. And then right away, uh, in particular, Republican-led legislatures and states with Republican governors really uh, are advocating for these maps that have a lot of squiggly lines. <laughs> That's where the mm. term gerrymander comes from, because it looks like a little lizard uh, in a way. So they're drawing these maps in a way that will give them the most uh, or the highest advantage over Democrats in the House. So they are drawing them in such a way where the districts are not competitive and they're weakening other districts that uh, usually go Democratic. Um, by kind of drawing them, lumping them in with other communities where they really shouldn't belong. So as a result, um, even though in states in Texas, where the like the largest gross population was Hispanics, you actually don't see those groups being represented particularly fairly in some of the draft maps that we've seen out of Texas, because they're giving more political power to white communities, as opposed to some of these communities that have seen growth um, among Hispanic people and people, other people of color. So hopefully that wasn't too lawyerly, but basically Republicans have really uh, refined the art of drawing unfair maps over the course of the last 20 years or so. And that is why Congress really should do something about this, that <laughs> people have faith <laughs> that our government is operating the way that it is supposed to and that the people who voted for the representatives are being represented fairly. I, that was a great explanation. And and one of the ways I, I like to sort of depict this for people, for, for those in the audience, you know, if you have a, a community of 100 people and you are drawing maps for those 100 people, well, you could split them up into 10 groups of 10, or you could split them up into four groups of 25, or you could split them up into one group of 10 and one group of 90, right? So there's, there's a whole mm -hmm. bunch of different ways that you can split up population. And one of the things that we often will see is when it comes to the redistricting process, they will do either one of two things. They will either pack communities of color and communities of interest into one or, or as few districts as possible, which means, yeah, you'll get an elected official in your district, but you're only going to get one representative in your in your state government, for example, for 
all of the people who fit under your umbrella. So mm -hmm. if we're talking about uh, Latinos in Texas, for example, it may be that according to population, Latinos could reasonably and justifiably get five districts. But the way they're being drawn into these maps is they're being packed into as few districts as possible so that they only get maybe two districts, uh, which means instead of having five yeah. votes at the state level to move legislation, to vote on everything from police reform, education reform, housing policy, health care policy, instead of having five votes that would have come from those five districts, because they were drawn in maps in such a way that packed them together, they only have two votes to influence policy at the state level. That's one version of it. But then, Megan, there's also cracking, right, where you take those communities uh, mm -hmm. and you, sp you sprinkle a few little Latinos in this district, a few little Latinos over here, a couple little black folks there, one or two Asians. You know, you just sprinkle and but you spread them out on the map. So and you divide their communities up so that instead of being able to amass political power, there are these permanent minority voices within these larger districts comprised typically of white uh, voters and citizens. So it, it, when you think about it that way, everybody, this process of drawing maps, it's really not sexy. It, there's nothing sexy and exciting <laughs> about it, but it literally determines so much about how our country is operating and how the rules get made and how policy is implemented. Megan, when we're talking about the real world impact of, of gerrymandering, and again, y'all, that's that process. Of, of sort of just making these terribly squiggly lines and maps just to accomplish political, a real like raw political power grabs. What is the real world impact of living in a gerrymandered district on communities of color? It, it, it's, it's just like what you said. It, it's really difficult to have your voice heard, if, if, especially if you're in a situation where your community has been cracked, where it's not possible for you to um, kind of lobby all your neighbors to agree on one thing if you've been lumped in with a group of people who don't share a common interest with you. Mm. Um, it's, it, it's just as bad, it, just like you say, in the packing situation where you could have like, the majority, like a huge chunk of your state living in just one congressional district. They should have a voice. Like that's actually like a majority, if it's a majority of people, majority should rule, right? But in those types of situations, they're weakening sort of the majority will by putting them in one district and, and sort of undermining the their ability to impact both state and federal policy if they just have um, one representative either in the state legislature or in Congress. What that means for the whole country is that you could, if you just look at the numbers, like the popular vote, Democrats are getting millions upon millions more votes than Republicans do. And, the, and it's like the best we can do is get a slight majority in the House or, or lose despite mm. getting more votes. And so that's the kind of the power of gerrymandering, which is that one political party can get more votes than the other and still lose a majority in the House. And that's the concern as we kind of head into 2022 for the midterm elections. You know, historically, it's, it's the case that the party in power loses seats in the midterms. But in this next year, it could very well be the case that we, that the Democrats lose seats in the midterms, not because there's a policy dispute with Joe Biden, but because Republicans have drawn maps in such a way that they will um, maintain uh, control despite mm. getting fewer votes. So they're really drawing themselves into a majority, even though they haven't actually achieved a majority at the ballot box. So it's very scary. 
So I, I just want to make sure people understood what you just said. You said that there it could be, and we have seen in states across the country, I'm thinking about Wisconsin in particular, uh, but we have seen where Democrat candidates, Democratic, the Democratic Party is getting way more votes numerically speaking. But because of the way mm-hmm. those votes are cast and where they are coming from, for example, if you look at, at the state of Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia, very densely populated portion of the state. But if you put every Everybody in that community just lump them all into one district, whereas they should have a way uh, far more votes coming to their their particular districts. They're actually not. And as a result, the Republicans are able to maintain power, even though they're getting way fewer votes. So, guys, yes, we have the one person, one vote principle in this country. But when you draw the district lines in order to to pursue that raw grab of power, uh, then you're able to minimize the effect uh, of all of the increased population that is actually voting in a different way. One of the things I'm curious about, Megan, is what is happening with the courts? What are the courts saying about this? It feels as though this is very anti-democratic. It feels like they are able to use these, this process to really thwart the will of the people. What are we seeing happening in the courts? I already know where you're going to go with this. So I'm pre-scared, but just go ahead and, and tell us what it is you are seeing uh, from the judiciary as they take on these cases and have to answer these questions about what it means to be redistricted or to engage in redistricting, what it means to be gerrymandered. Uh, and whether or not that is really fair uh, and if it is really in line with democratic principles uh, for the voting populace. Yeah, well, I think people should feel a little bit um, anxious about what might happen with some of these cases as they make their way through the federal judiciary. Folks know that the Supreme Court has a 6-3 conservative majority and uh, they're very, very conservative. Um, And they have done... and. The conservatives, excuse me, on the Supreme Court have engaged in some anti-democratic behavior of their own. I mean, they've um, uh, gutted the Voting Rights Act now twice in the last 10 years. And the most recently, back in June, they gutted what's called Section 2. And Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act allowed people to bring cases if their votes were being um, suppressed. And so one of the ways that your vote can be suppressed is if you are in these sort of uh, one of these gerrymandered districts, you could bring a case under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And now basically the Supreme Court has said, good luck, because it's really we're going to make it really, really hard for you to do that. Mm. The Supreme Court has also said in the past that while there may be other remedies um, for sort of like terribly drawn gerrymandered maps, they really don't want to weigh in on maps that have been gerrymandered on a partisan basis. So that would be a situation where whoever's drawing the map would say, okay, a lot of Democrats live in, say, San Antonio or whatever. So let's let's pack them all in one district based on how they vote. Um, there's also a form of racial gerrymandering, which is where, just like you said, where you um, kind of either pack or crack communities of color in one district or another based on race. The Supreme Court has said, well, we don't really want to get involved when it comes to partisan gerrymandering because that feels like a political question to us, which is why Congress has introduced this bill to ban partisan gerrymandering to kind of restore Mm -hmm. people's ability to bring claims if they have been gerrymandered in a partisan manner. So we really need to pass that bill. It's called the Freedom to Vote Act. In fact, it's getting a vote today in the Senate so that uh, there is an additional remedy for people who have been kind of harmed by partisan gerrymandering to bring those cases in court. But it's an uphill battle for sure. Donald Trump was terrifyingly successful in uh, confirming 
very young, very conservative and oftentimes unqualified, mostly white men to the bench. And even though Donald Trump is gone, his judges, the people that he picked to serve as judges, serve for life. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of Trumpies in the judiciary right now, um, but there's still lots of wonderful organizations and lawyers who are bringing cases against some of these god-awful maps and uh, really hoping that they prevail. But there's a role for Congress to play here, too, and that's passing the Freedom to Vote Act. When we think about getting involved in these topics, because we on this show, we give ourselves work to do. Uh, we're not just trying to talk about it. We try to be about it. And so we give ourselves power work <laughs> assignments. And the power work assignments often look like calling your senator, calling your congressperson, going to your city council hearing, going to your PTA hearing. Uh, in this case, today is the vote, as you noted, uh, Majority Leader Schumer, uh, who's my senator, uh, is actually, he, they're bringing this to a vote on the Freedom to Vote Act. I gotta be honest with you, and I, I feel like I've said that a lot of times because I feel I'm hedging a little bit. <laughs> I don't really see this passing. I do not know where on earth they're going to get this 60 uh, votes. That's 50 Democrats <laughs> plus 10 Republicans. Unless, Megan, you're about to break some news and tell us that you actually do know that there are going to be 10 Republicans. <laughs> I, I'm waiting for that that news to drop as well. Have you seen that yet? <laughs> no, I have not. It would be quite the sort of M. Night Shyamalan twist if I was able to say <laughs> I found the 10 Republicans. But no, they don't exist. And not even one Republican exists, let alone 10, mm-hmm. to kind of clear that that 60 vote threshold to pass this bill today. So you are correct that this bill is not going to pass today because the filibuster is preventing the Democratic majority from passing this bill. So what really needs to happen is there's no quarrel really about the substance of the bill. The substance is good. It bans partisan gerrymandering. It makes Election Day a federal holiday. It, um, it, it blocks some of the worst stuff we saw out of Georgia where they're, you know, they're allowed to sort of remove election officials if they decide something that the Republican governor doesn't like. So it addresses that. Um, there's a lot of really good stuff in this bill. Uh, it uh, really goes after kind of re- restoring our campaign finance system, which was gutted after Citizens United. It's a good bill. The substance is good. The issue is that is the procedure. So Democrats mm. really, really, and, and two Democrats in particular, really need to let go of the filibuster. It is not good for democracy. It is the one thing blocking us from having a democracy that functions properly. So after today's vote, I expect there to be a lot of focus on the filibuster and some reform, whether it's eliminating the filibuster or some other reform that allows this bill to uh, move forward and to pass. The good news about this is Joe Manchin, who has said repeatedly, you know, he loves the filibuster and he doesn't want to get rid of it. First of all, he's also said he supports restoring the talking filibuster, which would at least force people who object to something to physically go down to the Senate floor and talk and say why they don't like the bill. Because right now you can just kind of shoot off an email. <laughs> and that, that's the filibuster. It's the Uber um, Eats version also, of filibustering. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But this, uh, but he, people should understand he helped write this bill. The, vote, the bill they're voting on today, the Freedom to Vote Act, Joe Manchin wrote it and he negotiated the provisions in this bill. So if he doesn't also support a rules reform, he would be tanking his own piece of legislation. Mm. So at least I think that's kind of where I'm hanging my hope is that he's got skin in the game now, that this is his bill now, and he has an incentive to find a way to get it passed. And Majority Leader Schumer gave him all summer to find 10 Republicans, and he didn't. He wasn't able to. So um, really hopeful that today's vote will be the start of a renewed 
conversation for filibuster reform that Joe Manchin, who has been a real stickler on it um, for most of the year, will um, have a change of heart, especially when it comes to something as important as our democracy. You know, when you said they need to let it go, all I could envision was Adina Menzel singing, you know, the Frozen <laughs> song, just let it go. <laughs> just please, for right. the sake of all that is holy and democratic, let the damn thing go. Uh, so <laughs> if you can, I, I want you to help us envision, if you can, what our communities might look like if the maps that that center our districts and that produce the districts from which we vote, if they were drawn equitably what might that because we, we know what happens when they're not but it's so easy to think about well we don't have this because of that what could we have if we really did have equitably drawn districts all across the country what would democracy look like what would our quality of life look like if our districts actually reflected the populations they represent yeah i mean i think you, you would actually have a representative government right you'd have a situation where um, you know, I, I genuinely think that uh, representatives would be more responsive to their constituents in, in a situation like that. I think the instead of putting, uh, you know, a bunch of conservatives in one district, what if you had a, a district where whoever was running actually had to kind of moderate their positions a little bit and be a little bit more reasonable? You'd have mm. fewer Marjorie Taylor Greens. You'd have fewer of some of the more fringier, like Lauren Bo- Boberts and whatnot, if you had districts where... Um, where it was not, you weren't rewarded for being as unreasonable as possible. Mm. So we really could find ourselves in a situation where the one vote, uh, one person, one vote rule actually applied that Congress itself was made up of people that were actually representative of their states and their districts. We would probably have fewer um, extremes uh, in Congress as a result. So there's no downside, all upsides in my view. Considering everything that is at risk right now and considering that our first power work assignment is to call our senators today and demand that they pass the Freedom to Vote Act. Are there ways for people to get involved at the state level that perhaps uh, are beyond just contacting our federal representatives? Yeah, so part of the redistricting process is, um, you know, whoever in your state is responsible for drawing the maps will also hold public hearings uh, where folks can come in and uh, testify about the maps, whether they, you think that they're fair or not fair. And then all of that becomes part of the record. So um, our friends at All on the Line have a bunch of, has a bunch of information on their website about how you can kind of get involved in those types of public hearings. That's one really good way to stay involved um, on the local level. Um, also, some states have what are called independent redistricting commissions, which um, instead of having politicians draw the maps, you have nonpartisan people draw the maps. And so um, definitely that's something that folks can talk to their state representatives about is establishing a commission like that. It probably wouldn't be in place in time for next year's maps, but for future fair maps, that would be a good thing um, mm-hmm. to have in, have in place. But there's lots of ways. I mean, these these maps are drawn at the state level. Um, your governor, your state representatives, whether you have an independent redistricting commission, they all ask for public input on these maps. And so that's a really good and solid way for people to um, have their say before the maps are finalized. 
And I got folks, just so you know, like this is this is real time really happening. What she said is correct. We will not be able to see this happen uh, if it's not already currently in place in your state uh, for this cycle. But you could for the next cycle. And remember, y'all, we're talking the long game here. We spent a couple of days ago uh, some time talking about the fact that uh, people who were against the Voting Rights Act have been working to destroy it since it was passed in 1965. They've been for the past 57 years. Like that's what they've been focused on. They had a long game and they didn't win the end of the Voting Rights Act with their first effort, but they kept at it. So take that evil example and let's flip it on its head for good. Uh, I am a, an active part of the redistricting advocacy committee here in the state of New York. We are working to ensure that communities of interest comprised of people of African descent are going to have an equitable share of political power and resources. We are in coalition with the Asian American Legal Defense Fund and Latino Justice Pearl Def and NAACP Legal Defense Fund to ensure that each of our respective constituency groups will have maps and will be voting from districts and living in districts that are drawn equitably based on population. And so this is something that you can be actively involved in. If you don't have a redistricting commission in your state, you can work uh, with people who are there who are interested in this. There are a number of good government groups that are thinking about this really hard. Uh, We are pushing a model of unity mapping here in New York uh, that has been really successful for communities of color here. So there are a lot of ways to get engaged, to get involved. But it must happen and it absolutely must be centered as a part of our process, because as one of my good friends, uh, attorney Jerry Vadamala out of ADL, um, Asian American Legal Defense Fund always says, he's like, Larie, we could have the best voting rights act. We could have a hundred percent voting turnout. But if I am drawing the maps in a way that is going to confer power to one group over another, I can nullify all of that with simply how I'm drawing the district line. So redistricting truly is the voting rights and civil rights issue that most of us never learned about, but which is really at the heart of why we all struggling right now to get through the things we are trying to get through. Uh, (laughs) Megan, it is it has been such a pleasure having you here. You are a wealth of information. I hope we can get you to come back to help us unpack additional issues. How can people follow you and the work that you're doing uh, with Indivisible? Uh, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. This was a blast and happy to Yay. come back anytime. Uh, but if you want to know more about Indivisible, you can go to indivisible.org and you can learn how to join a group or just see what we're kind of working on and what we're, um, uh, you know, some tips and tricks on calling your members of Congress or your senators. Uh, if you want to follow me personally, I am on Twitter, unfortunately, quite a bit. And my handle is <laughs> at important Megan. <laughs> That's where you can find me. <laughs> at important Megan. You are very important. And so is your voice. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been fun. Thanks so much. I appreciate it.